as they make their way down. Would you stand with me? Let's stand together. And let's read Psalm 141. This is the word of the Lord. Give ear to my voice, a psalm of David. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in the company who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, for it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. This is the word of our Lord, inspired, infallible, and errant, and may he impress it upon our hearts this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Four, four pastors met for a friendly gathering. And during the conversation, one of the pastors said, our people come to us and pour out their hearts and confess certain sins and needs, and I think we should do the same because confession is good for the soul. And in due time, they all agreed. One confessed he liked to go to the movies and would sneak off when he was away from his church. That was his vice. The second confessed he liked to smoke cigars. And the third confessed he liked to gamble a little bit. When it came to the fourth one, he wouldn't confess. And the others pressed him and pressed him and finally said, Come on now, we confess ours. What is your secret or your vice? And finally he answered, Well, mine is gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> he learned the... Okay, maybe it was bad. No, sorry. Thank you. Okay. Psalm 141. Um, if I could, I, I titled the sermon um, the, the Power of Words. And I think that's appropriate because we are going to talk about the power of words. But if I could go back and do it again, I might title it um, The Theology of Enemies Part 2. Part 2. Uh, or, the, or maybe The Enemy Within Me. Maybe what we would call it. Psalm 141 could have been written in any number of situations that David found himself in pertaining to seeking God's protection from evil men. The last psalm I preached when we were looking at Psalm 140, we developed a theology of having enemies external and how to deal with the problem of enemies out there. Now, this psalm is dealing with enemies, but it adds another dimension and really probably a more important dimension to the prayer 
that we studied in Psalm 140. It adds a plea not simply for God to save me from evil men out there, but for God to save from evil me, from the evil man that stands here. David knows that the pressure that he is under from sinful men tempts him to some things that are his own problems. The problems aren't the problems of evil men. They're his own dealings, his own evils. And he prays both for deliverance from those evil men out there. Yes, he continues that same theme, but also from the deliverance of the evil that lies within him. And so this psalm is in three parts, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 6, and then verses 7 through 10, and we will take it on its natural parts. 1 and 2 is a plea that God would hear him. So if you're taking notes, here's our three main points for the day. Verse 1 and 2 is a plea that God would hear him. Verses 3 through 6 is a plea that God would save him from himself. And verses 7 through 10 are a plea that God would fulfill his promises to him. So hear him, three pleas. Hear him, save him from himself, and that God would fulfill his promises that he's already made to David. So perhaps you can resonate with the situation that David is in. You perceive that the behavior of another person is wrong. Right? We're, we're really good at perceiving wrongness or evil in other people. Maybe even that you are the one that is being wronged. All sorts, um, all sorts of emotions come welling up in your heart that you know are not pure. You suddenly find yourself indulging in things that are not just, in attitudes that are not pure, in responses that are not clean, in ways that are not, you know are not pleasing to the Lord. There is a certain challenge to living in a fallen world and also being fallen yourself. Even when you perceive another in the wrong, you can respond to the wrong wrongly. You are going to answer to God and give an account for the words of your lips and the actions of your hands, and the psalmist recognizes this. He recognized the potential for evil inside and he is pleading with the Lord to meet the evil he feels in his own heart. So let's jump in. Verses 1 and 2. Let's pull those up and look at them again together. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. The first verse of this psalm clearly indicates the urgency of the situation that David finds himself in. He repeats himself. It's wrong that's being done against him. And bef but before, he barks out orders to carry out vengeance to one of his 300 mighty men. Before he takes the situation into his own very capable hands to deal with whatever threats are coming at him, he sends up a spiritual emergency flare to heaven and remembers from where his help comes from. Because if you remember back to Psalm 121, remember, where does my help come from? King David says, my help comes from the Lord. This is a lesson that he's learned over and over and over again. But he's not treating the Lord as some sort of servant. His attitude is not one of pride or presumption in his time of need. David understands the dynamic of prayer. That the Lord has even put him in the circumstance that he's in so that a transaction could take place of great significance between King David, maybe not King quite yet, David, because there's, there, there's, there's debate amongst scholars about which exact, because, I mean, pick your, pick your conflict. David had a lot of them. He had a lot of people coming after him, whether it was the Philistines or it was King Saul or it was his son, Absalom, right? So the Lord himself, David knows, 
That God is sovereign and the Lord himself has put David in this situation so that there might be a transaction between David's soul and the living God. There might be prayer. And David spells that out for us in verse 2 by comparing his prayer to incense and then to the evening sacrifice or the evening offering. Right? These are, now, these might be kind of foreign to us. We might know what incense is, but in an Old Testament sense or in a, even in a New Testament sense, what does that mean? And then what in the world, what is the, how does he showing that he understands the dynamic that's taking place between his soul and the living God and the importance of prayer based upon incense and evening sacrifice? So let's take a minute and just investigate that. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. What's the imagery of incense here? In the tabernacle and temple worship, David would have understood that incense is a picture of something that is being lifted up to God and is pleasing to him. Something that is going up to God and is pleasing to him. Several weeks ago, Pastor Matt preached Revelation chapter 5. And I want to hone in on um, Revelation chapter 5 verse 8. When John sees the four living creatures bowing down and worshiping God... He sees 24 elders bowing down and worshiping the Lamb. He sees each one of them having a, a heart and a golden bowls full of incense. Golden bowls full of incense. And then he tells us exactly what the image of these golden bowls full of incense means. What are the golden bowls? What is the incense here? They are the prayers of the saints. Incense is the prayers of the saints. But David had said that almost a thousand years before. It's as if he is saying, Lord, I lift up my prayers to you like incense. As the smoke rises up to you from the faith rituals of the priests, so my prayer rises up to you out of my faith. And it is a, you know, if you've ever smelled incense, it's a pleasing aroma. Right? It is, it's what God wants from his faithful people. It goes up to heaven and it pleases God. Prayer is a sacrifice of praise, and King David knows that. He says, this cry for help is like incense. My raising of my hands towards heaven, like the evening, evening sacrifice or evening offering. What does that mean? So we're going to go for that back to Exodus chapter 29 and understand what is this evening offering. Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and following. The evening offering is described. And to paraphrase it, this is, this, in Exodus 29, you've got uh, the, the consecration of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood and all the things they need to go through through that. And then, then it gets down at the very bottom of 29 and it's talking about what do the priests do day by day. What are they doing day by day to mark time, to maintain consistent faithfulness to God? Well, there are two lambs every day in the temple. Two lambs were to be sacrificed, a year old, one in the morning, one in the evening or at twilight. This is the morning and evening sacrifice. It was rhythmic and it was consistent in the lives of the people of Israel, it was so consistent and so rhythmic that they kept time by it. It marked their days. And David says, this prayer that I'm lifting up to you is kind of like the evening sacrifice of the lamb. This is very significant, brothers and sisters. It's not only significant for our theology of the Lord's Day. This is, if you didn't know, this is one of the reasons... That we believe the Lord's Day ought to be framed in prayer and praise, and we ought to 
have a, a pattern of attendance to gather with God's people, to lift up a sacrifice of praise to Him. Because of that very pattern of morning and evening that we see God's people keeping consistently, marking time with their worship of God and their communication with God and their prayers to God. Sundays filled with prayer and praise are rhythmic in the life of a Christian. Rhythmic in the life of a Christian. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 21, Daniel tells us exactly when it was that the angel Gabriel came to visit him. Daniel 9, 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, when the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. When? About the time of the evening sacrifice. And remember the context of Daniel. He had been in Babylonian exile for six decades at this point. Daniel hadn't been a part of the evening sacrifice for 60 years. Yet, he when Gabriel comes to him to talk to him, how does he mark the time? Because it was about the time that would have been the evening sacrifice. David's chronological world, the chronological world of Israel, is built around these ordinary means of grace, that is, the ordained rhythm of prayer. And what David is saying here when he says, Come to me, O Lord. My prayer is like incense. I know it's pleasing to you. My cries out for help are pleasing to you. He is also saying, I so trust in the effectiveness of my plea to you. By calling on you for help, I can set my clock by it. Just as the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, so is the Lord my help. He is just that consistent. This is a normal part of my life is what he's saying. So normal that I can set my clock by it. So when we cry out to the Lord for help, a significant transaction is going on between your soul and him, our souls and him. Your prayers of sacrifice of praise and your God to your God is so reliable to hear and help that you could set your clock by him. And before we move on from this point, hear the echoes the whispers, so to speak, of the greatest twilight sacrifice ever offered for us from Exodus chapter 29. The sacrifice of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross in Golgotha, which surely is a fulfillment of Exodus chapter 29. So in the face of sin being committed by others, David, before doing anything else, acts on his instinct to turn to the Lord in prayer. Number one, because it's pleasing to God, and number two, because he just understands that that's what he's to do. It's how, it's been, he's been there for him before. He'll be there for him this time. He'll be there for him in the future. Just as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, God is the help of David. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, this morning, God is your help as well. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. What? Everything to God in prayer. Prayer. I like this line. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. 
Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Only because we forget, we're such forgetful people, that when we pray it's pleasing to God and that he is faithful, so faithful to hear our prayers that we can set our clocks by him. And then the next verse is 3 to 6. We're really going to get into the meat of the text of what David's pleading for here. Okay, so he knows he has to come to the Lord, but when, he's, when he sees the sins of another, the first thing he does is not to act, not to speak, not to think, but just simply to go to the Lord in prayer. And then the next section, verses 3 to 6, he pleads that God would save him from himself. He pleads that God would save him from himself. David asks for help from God in regulating three things about himself when he is being wrong. Number one, his words. Number two, his emotions and his actions. And number three, the company that he keeps. This is very important. So he knows, he recognizes in himself that the, the tendency for sin is going to come from three, one of three places or three things working together to create that sin. Number one, the words that he speaks. Number two, the, his emotions and actions. And number three, the company that he keeps. How David handles himself in the face of conflict flows from him being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. He is catechized. He has been catechized in how to deal with conflict caused by sin. Many of us are not catechized in how to deal with conflict when it comes to sin, when we perceive sin. But God is a gracious God, and in Christ, he forgives the uncareful nature of our words and actions. But as the Lord dealt with me in this text, and I thought about how to convey it to you, I am convinced, brothers and sisters, hear me, I'm convinced that this is a major stronghold of sin in our lives as as Christians because we have not been trained on how to be sinned against and not sin in return. It's obviously a valuable skill to have because Psalm 141, that's what it is. It's, it's how to be sinned against and not sin in return. It's hard to do when you've been exposed to the wisdom. It's impossible to do without it. Impossible. But brothers and sisters, praise be to God that we have a clear word from the Lord this morning in Psalm 141. Let's be trained and let's give this training to the next generation so that they have a better foundation for obedience and knowing how, because they're going to be sinned against. How do I not add my sin to the sin? There are three questions that arise out of these verses, uh, three through six. When I perceive the sinfulness of others, or when I have been wrong, first question, what words do I speak? Second question, does my heart drive my feet? And third, what company do I keep? little mnemonic device there for you to remember this morning. What words do I speak? Does my, does my heart drive my feet? And what company do I keep? These three dimensions are very interconnected. And so they are difficult to separate out. I will try, but understand that what King David is laying out here is a system for how he speaks, feels, and acts in the face of sin. The company we keep either encourages or discourages sinful behavior and the way that we feel. The way we feel, our emotions cause us to act or speak in a sinful way, or it causes us to hold our tongues. 
What we say or do deals with sin in a way that honors the Lord, or it deals with sin in a way that adds more sin to the already very sinful pile of things. So first question, what words do I speak? I've perceived the sin. David perceives, in this situation, sin is actually directed at him. But it, it applies for everything. I perceive the sin of another person. I've prayed. Now I ask three questions. First question, what words do I speak? We sin with our mouths far more than we sin in any other way. That little tongue, little as it is, as Pastor Matt spoke and prayed earlier from James, little as it is, sets the world on fire, right? Has great potential to do harm. When you look around and see friendships broken, when you see parents where there's tension, when you see difficulty straining marriages, straining parent-child relationships, relationships between brothers broken, between brothers and sisters, almost always, almost always, the source of this conflict is unguarded tongues, uncareful speech. Hear the wisdom of Solomon, who is David's son, right? Proverbs 21 Verse 23, and this is just a smattering. There are lots of Proverbs, but I, there's, there's three of them here I want to share that I think are really relevant to what we're going to talk about. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever guards his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 18, verse 8, the words of the whisper are like delicious morsels. The words of the whisper, they go down into the inner parts of the body. They feed a sinful appetite within us. The words of a whisper. When you perceive the sinfulness of another person, how you talk about it, or if you talk about it, either helps bring that person to repentance or it adds your sin to the pile. Idle talk, idle talk is, idle talk is words that have no purpose and lead to no action. And if the wisdom of the Proverbs is true, which it is, then idle talk is at best unwise and at worst outright sin. Idle talk, idle, I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L, not like idolatry, but idle, I-D-L-E, meaning leading to nothing. Talk that leads to nothing. Is at best unwise, at worst sinful. When speaking of the sins of another, be very, very careful. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a clear instructions on how to confront the sins of another. The model he gave us stands as an insurance policy against adding our own sin to the equation. You see, Jesus knew the wisdom of the scriptures. He knew the wisdom of Solomon. He obeyed the wisdom of David, and he understood that what we were going to be tempted to do. And so Matthew 18 is basically like a fleshed out how exactly to execute when you perceive somebody else is sinning to guard us and give us safeguardings. Church discipline is a, is a means of grace to us. If we would just listen to the wisdom of the scripture, it's a means of grace. If brother A book, chapter, and verse sins against brother B, brother B is not to talk about it to brother C, D, E, F, and G. He is to, like David, cry out to the Lord, keep his heart humble as a grace-dependent sinner, 
Then he is to go to brother A and speak about that sin. Now, there is a place for gaining counsel. There is a place for gaining counsel. Perhaps if you feel like your emotions are clouding biblical judgment, or you're unclear on whether or not the action of your brother was a sin according to the Bible, or maybe just according to some preconceived notion of what you think. And you need clarity. But there's a difference between seeking biblical counsel and seeking a counselor. Seeking biblical counselor and just simply seeking a counselor. And speaking about the perceived sin of a brother, are you looking for a clarification of biblical truth that leads you to action, or are you looking for a listening ear, someone to sympathize with your point of view? The latter, or the former, is guarded speech. It's wise. It's seeking biblical counsel. The latter is idle talk and gossip. And it leads to nothing but more hurt feelings and sin. So a practical application on helping each other to guard our mouths. If someone comes to you talking about the sins of another, one method to tell if that person is looking for biblical counsel or just a sympathetic ear is to do this. Say this, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that about brother or sister so-and-so. I've got their number right here. Let's set up a meeting and maybe we can talk it through. And if their response is, oh, would you? Would you please? I'm really struggling with this. I, I, I can't quite form my words well. I, I just, my emotions are, I'm so tangled up and I need help working through what I've got to work through. But would you do that for me? That means a great deal. If that's their response, that's them seeking biblical counsel. But if their response is, well, you know, I don't really think it's all that serious, that we need to go talk to them, then it's idle talk. It's speech leading to no action. It's idle talk. If it's not serious enough to talk to that person about, for you to do the hard work of praying and thinking yourself clear and writing and researching relevant biblical passages, getting your emotions in check, considering the life situation of that person, scheduling a time to have a heart-to-heart. If it's not that serious, then it's not serious enough for you to be talking to anyone else about it. And that's fine. It's okay. Maybe it's a, it's a personality conflict. There's no book, chapter, and verse. You're just irked. Let it go. Take a deep breath. Let it go. But we can't also, conversely, use it as a cop-out. If the Bible says it's serious, then it's serious. Somebody, if a brother or sister has legitimately sinned against you or against someone else that you have seen and witnessed firsthand, then it's serious. If someone is sinning book, chapter, and verse, then you as their brother or sister in Christ are obligated to not let them continue on in darkness. That would be unloving. That would be hateful. But if it's just not evidently the way you would go about your life, and it's not worth the trouble of going through Matthew 18, then keep your mouth closed. Find something else to talk about. Or here, use the wisdom of the Proverbs that says many words creates many transgressions, and don't say anything. Just be quiet. Allow me to speak to all the extroverts in the room. The people who actually miss shaking hands in greeting time. You know who you are. 
This is a scathing rebuke for us. Yes, I said us. Me and you. In fact, as I put this message together, I thought it, I, I over and over and over again would go to, I went back to the Lord and said, man, it's pretty rich that the Lord would use this mouth to speak these words to, to God's people. We have it doubly tough because we are turned by conversation. We love engaging with people. Love connecting with people through words. But, and love, I love creating environments where I'm not in control of any conversation. I'm just getting people to speak words to each other. I, just, I love that. I love being in... I like wedding receptions. and you know, just, I, that's, my, that's my jam. I love it. It's good. But... Just because you own a Corvette doesn't mean you drive at 180 miles per hour down Main Street. You don't have to fill the silence. When you run out of godly, thought-through, helpful things to stay, stop talking. Hang up the phone. Move on. Move on. If you go on into idle talk... If you, if you don't, if you don't heed the words of Scripture here and you go on into idle talk, it's not your personality and it's not a love language, it's your sin habit. It's your sin problem. Helpful tool. We'll move on. We'll move on. Because we we're piling on the law here, right? Helpful tool for all of us when we're trying to guard our tongues. Think, the word think, T-H-I-N-K. Remember your mom always told you, you better think about what you say before you say it. Think, T-H-I-N-K. Is it true? Think, T. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? True, helpful, inspiring, necessary, kind. If it fails that test, zip it. Move on. Talk about the weather or something. Right? Okay. That's the tongue. Second part David deals with in that verse. He says, put a guard over my lips, set a guard over my mouth. He understands the danger of the words that might flow from his mouth. Second part, he talks about his heart. Turn back to it. Got excited and closed the Bible. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. To busy myself with wicked deeds. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. So, does my heart drive my feet? Okay, so, the mouth, does my heart drive my feet? Does the way I feel determine what I do and how I act? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says. David knows, especially when he's being sinned against by another, he knows he cannot trust his emotions. So he prays that the Lord would keep his heart from inclining to evil and revenge against this person who has wronged him. Application. Don't blindly follow your emotions. Only a fool acts out in the way he feels in any given moment. That's what a child does. Proverbs say foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Part of the manifestation of that is them, when they feel something, they act on something. As adults, we're called not to do that. Grow up. Put some distance, swallow hard, bridle your tongue, and get some distance between the way you feel and any action upon those feelings. And remember that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. Jesus himself 
says this, Ask the Lord to cleanse your heart so that what flows out of your mouth is refreshing and not poisonous. Then finally, consider what you're steeping yourself in. If you find yourself talking with negativity, anger, vengeance, jealousy, etc., audit the TV you're watching, the music you're listening to, the company you're keeping. We'll get more to that in a second. The social media news feeds are mostly a waste gland of unguarded speech. If you're soaking in it more than you're soaking in the word, it's going to be really hard to guard what comes out of your mouth. It's a wasteland, people. (laughs) The Proverbs say, not everybody has a valid opinion, okay? That's not me, that's the scriptures, okay? There's, There's the way of the fool and there's a way of righteousness. If you're not speaking in the way of righteousness, you're speaking in the way of a fool. So therefore, not everybody has a valid opinion, because a lot of what's said is foolishness. Because if it's not in the way of the Lord, if it's not righteous, if it's not good and pure and holy and so on and so forth, then it's the other way. And if you're steeping in the other way, your heart will then pontificate upon foolishness. Be careful what you take in. Fill your heart with grace by soaking in your Bible. Soak in Matthew 5, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 13, Philippians 2. All these good passages. What company do I keep? Third question, what company do I keep? So, what does my tongue speak? Does my heart drive my feet? What company do I keep? Finally, David knows that if he keeps company with men that engage in idle talk and incline their hearts towards evil, that he will be a man that does the same. But a righteous man will rebuke him in those tendencies. A righteous man, when he's, when he's engaged in idle talk, the righteous man will say, I'm so sorry to hear that. I've got... Number right here. Let's go talk to that person. A righteous man will rebuke him in those tendencies, and he is asking the Lord to help him see this as a blessing and not as an insult. That's, it's, I know I, I said to do that, but that's kind of scary, right? Like, when, you call, when somebody is caught in a pattern of, that, of sin, and they are, and it's, it's in a kind of a subtle way, and it's in speech, you know, brothers coming to you and talking and talk, especially if you've, if you've been the unwise counselor and you've been listening to it and giving ear to it and so forth. Suddenly, if you change your pattern of behavior and person comes to you and they're engaging in idle speech and you say, oh, I'm sorry to hear about that. Let's go talk to so-and-so. That's kind of a scary thing to do because that brother may not be like King David here when he says, righteous man rebuking me is like oil on my head. It's like conditioner for my hair. It makes me better. It makes me more beautiful. That takes humility. And I guess what I'm asking you, you is if anybody does this to you, recognize what you're doing right there and realize that a righteous man rebuking you is like oil on your head. It's a positive thing. It's good. It'll help you. Don't despise him. Are you a person that seeks and appreciates counsel or do you surround yourself with people who will offer you a sympathetic ear? Are you a person that seeks to give counsel and heal bonds broken by sin? Or do you give safe harbor to idle talk? Like I said earlier, some people's personalities make them easy to talk to. If people are always coming up to you with their problems, hear me. God has given you a special responsibility. Don't be the bad company that David warns against. 
Guard your mouth and tongue, lest the idle talk of others be like a sinful, sweet, juicy morsel that sinks down into your heart. You just can't wait to get out of there to tell somebody else about it. Use the tactic I mentioned earlier and resolve that you are going to be an agent for sin resolution and not a center for idle talk. You want the Lord to change us fundamentally, take us to the next level in our communication, take us to the next level in holiness, take our children to the next level in righteousness and holiness. Listen to that sentence one more time. Resolve that you are going to be an agent for sin resolution and not a center for idle talk. Finally, in verses 7 to 10, a plea that God would fulfill his promise. As one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are towards you, O my God, my Lord. And you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. David asked God to watch over and spare him in spite of his enemies' sins and their scheming against him. He urgently depicts their designs, and then he indicates the location of his hope, his only hope, and he prays that his enemies will trap themselves. But he, he, you can see the urgency of what's going on here. We, this, he literally had people wanting to do verse 7 to him. This was an, an ancient cultural tactic that when a king would overtake a land, one of the things he would do to defile them and assert his dominance over this new people was he would go out to their graveyard and plow up all the bones of their dead loved ones and then just scatter them all over in front of the front gate as a tactic. And that's what David's enemies were trying to do to him. They were looking to deal pretty harshly with him. So he, but he, but even in that scenario, I mean, even in that scenario, he turns to the Lord. He's afraid of, I, I think it's King Saul because of the, how his regard for the Lord's anointed and all that, how he wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. He was, he was afraid of doing that, of acting against King Saul. It's just what I think, though. So he's really hesitant. He doesn't want to sin on top of their sin. And then look at verse 8. My eyes are towards you, O my God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. He knows that vengeance is the Lord's and that he is the Lord's and that no matter the outcomes his life, of his life, he is bound up in the purposes of the Lord over and above his flawed sense of what he thinks is justice against his enemies. Then he prays, keep me from the trap they have laid for me. Let the wicked fall into their own nets. Lord, let it bounce right back on them and let me pass through safely. So here, David indicates the location of his only hope and his hope is in the Lord. He knows that vengeance is the Lord. He knows that any vengeance that he might carry out with his mouth or his heart or his actions or listening to idle talk or listening to bad counsel and keeping counsel with wicked men, any vengeance that he could carry out against this person who has squarely made themselves a fool and an enemy of God, he, any vengeance he could carry out against them is nothing. It's little. And it only adds his sin to the pile only adds him to the list of people that are God's enemies and that God needs to deal with in justice. And look back at verse 6. It's, a little, it's an odd little verse. And I, it 
It's weird. It's weird in the Hebrew. So weird that they put a footnote in the ESV that basically says, we kind of don't know what this means. But they, I, I think the ESV does a pretty good job at rendering it out, though. It says, when their judges are thrown off the cliff, thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. When their judges are thrown over the cliff. So you've got the, the, the tongue, heart, company part of 3, 4, and 5, and then he's this weird little verse here, and then he goes into 7 to 10 where he's talking about how he relies upon the Lord and trusts upon the Lord, that vengeance is the Lord, and so on and so forth. What does this mean? I think the ESV, like I said, does a pretty good job. The psalmist put this verse, at, he could have put this verse at the very end of the passage, and it might make a little bit more sense in our English sentence, paragraph, structure, poem, composition, minds. So we could tag it at the end here. So all these things have happened. He, so he prays to God. He's trying to control his own mouth and his own heart and his own actions and because he knows that God is sovereign over all things and vengeance is the Lord's. And then what's the outcome? So that when their judges are thrown over the cliff, they maybe will hear my words. They shall hear my words and they're pleasant. He's saying that if the Lord will keep my mouth shut, if he will keep me from sinning, And he will turn the schemes back upon those who are sinning against me. Their judges, their leaders, right, will be thrown over a cliff. It, that means exposed and brought to judgment, executed for their crimes, right? So this is how they executed people. Walk them out to a high ledge and just walk them off. Public execution. So he's saying, when whatever is leading them dies, then they'll hear my words. They'll recognize them as pleasant. When you are sinned against, and then in turn sin with your unguarded tongue, or you carry out vengeance as it flows from an unregulated heart, it's because you have lost sight of the fact that vengeance is the Lord. You are seeking to carry out the justice of Almighty God. Remember, when you face the trial caused by sin of another, the whole situation is under the sovereign sphere of God Himself. He sees, He knows, and your pathetic selfish, sin-filled attempt at vengeance will only make a bigger mess of things and it won't accomplish the justice and you will lose all ability to be heard. Like it said in that verse. Pull that verse back up in 6. To be heard. Because really, that's, that's really at the core, right? Like when you get down to it and you just feel wronged, you just want to be heard. You just want someone, that, I mean, that's why we engage in the idle talk. Maybe don't really, maybe I don't really actually intend to do anything about this, but dang, I'm, I'm kind of mad, kind of upset, a little, tur little, little turned up because somebody did something to me. And a lot of times in our, in our desire to just be heard, we sin. But we negate our ability to be heard at all when we sin. see this in marriages a lot, right? And usually it happens way after the fact. The whole situation blows up. Boom! And then pastors, they hear about it and we go, okay, we have to go over try to sort this out. What can we help? How can we help? How can we pray? And so on and so forth. And when you get into it, you know, spouse A is the, is the reason we're there because they did a, a big, bad, out loud public thing that was just bad. But spouse B 
You ask Palisade, why did you do this? And they say, well, because my spouse was, was doing this, 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 and this. They wouldn't listen to me, even though they weren't really talking. And so they acted out, boom. But then all credibility is gone. Because we now have to deal with the big explosion. Then we can deal with the, what, we had to do, what we could have dealt with way back there if we just would have talked, kept our tongues and hearts guarded and so forth, and had a conversation about it. We just want to be heard. But the way to be heard, the way for vengeance, the way for real justice, justice isn't yours. You can't take it. We are heard when we obey the Lord. If you'll turn to him, keep watch over yourself, lest you fall into sin, and trust that his promises and his ways are true and sovereign, then whenever, whatever is leading that sinful person or that sinful behavior is exposed, you will be vindicated, and then you might actually be heard. And what you have to say will be thought as pleasant and good and right. Man, I don't get this right very often, guys. This wisdom is so, from this word of God, is so good. But man, it is so convicting, isn't it? It is so heavy. It's just heavy on my heart as I did this today. And then, We sang those songs this morning, too, so sweet to trust in Jesus. Out of my mouth for 34 years have flown curses and blessings. I'll get it right one day and I'll get it bad the next. Get it right one week, get it bad the next. Lead a Bible study and go home and yell at my kids. Man. Praise be to God that when we fall short, there was an evening sacrifice made on our behalf. Just repent. If you, if you have this habit, I, identify it and repent. Realize it's wrong. I know how bad you want to be heard. It's not, nothing is so bad that you can't take it to the Lord. He has been the one for us that was mocked in scorn. He has been the one for us that terrible things were said about him and he didn't even, he was the only person that terrible things were said about ever in the history of humanity that didn't actually deserve it. The only person ever to not sin with his mouth. And he died your death. He paid your price. 
And so we repent, and if you've ever been, and you're going to be where David is, let me give you a little bit of prayer. We're just going to, we're going to pray this prayer, and you can take it and, and use it. Maybe I'll post it. It's based upon Psalm 141. Let's pray together. Lord, in this trial that's coming from others, don't let me think that the only danger is from them. There's danger in me. Put a guard on my mouth. Keep my heart from being steeped in evil. Help me discern good company from bad. Keep me from the danger in me. And keep me from the danger in evil men. May you get the glory in this situation through my obedience. Not so that my truth can be heard, so that the truth, you, can be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.